Well, Laura, I think what I'm going to do is I'll go ahead and kick us off because I know we have a short amount of time and a lot of information, and I don't want to um, start this conversation without first holding space for um, all of us who are feeling tired, who are <laughs> grieving and regrieving um, this week particularly. Um, so I do want to give us some time really to um, hold space to process those emotions, um, particularly when we reflect on what has happened this week um, with Breonna Taylor, and we know that it is reflective of something that continues to happen to Black women and men um, in our country. And so I know that we're feeling a lot of emotions um, through that, and we are continuing to look at a system that, that we are repeatedly seeing as a flawed system. Um, so I do just want to give us a moment before we jump into this conversation and just you know, take a moment to process those emotions, um, process those thoughts, because, you know, the conversations that we have tonight, again, will be a heavy conversation. That was one reason why we wanted to have these conversations, to give ourselves an opportunity to continue to learn, um, to educate ourselves, to really activate um, our communities towards action, and hopefully to move into legislation at some point. And so I just want to give us that time and that space tonight, reflect on everything that's been happening this week and what's been happening in our lifetime. So I'm just going to give us a quick moment of just silence, and then I will hand it over to Lori. So I just took that moment to exhale, and I hope you did the same. So, Lori, if you will kick off our conversation and introduce our speaker for the evening. Yes. Good evening, everyone. Happy Thriving Thursday. I hope that you had a great day. Uh, we are almost at the end of the week, so if you can hold on for one more day, I promise that you'll get even more rest, I hope. Uh, tonight, we have a very special guest, Ms. Linda Villarosa. So excited to have her. Uh, we wanted to have someone who was extremely knowledgeable about the space of environmental justice and racism. And I, as you all know, for those who know me, I reached out and said, hey, we have these conversations. Would love for you to take a moment and share. She gave us the gift, gift of yes. So we are most appreciative of her time. Not going to hold her long because she does have a very important meeting with her mom this weekend who is turning 90 and celebrating her birthday. So we want her to get to her sooner than later. I have been tasked with giving you a little bit about her. She is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. She covers race and public health and is also the former executive editor at the Essence Magazine. Uh, in 2018, Times Magazine cover story for her was on infant and maternal mortality in black mothers and babies and was nominated for a National Magazine Award. For those who tuned in for one of our conversations a few weeks ago, we talked a lot about maternal health and maternal challenges for black women. So excited to have Ms. Linda Villarosa. I will turn it over to her. Um, well, Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, being able to address a group of moms and godmoms and grandmothers and aunties and <laughs> people who love children, um, of which I am one. Um, 
So thank you. Tonight, I'm going to talk up, I most recently wrote a story called The Refinery Next Door. And it was a look at environmental racism, but um, the flip side of environmental racism is environmental justice. And so I'm gonna first define what, you know, the terms, and then sort of talk about what it means and how you see it and, and the evidence um, around it. So environmental racism is really the idea that um, people of color, but especially black people, are more likely to live near um, places that are polluted. So it might be a landfill, it might be a refinery, it might be, it's just any place that is um, polluted. And the if you know about the Flint water crisis in Flint, Michigan, so that disproportionately affected black people. But um, that is well evidenced and it's been going on for a very long time. So I'm gonna tell you the story of how environmental racism became um, sort of came into the American imagination. So in 1978, there was this town called in Warren County, um, North Carolina. So it was this county of people, the, one of the poorest places in North Carolina and also the blackest. So people were going to work, driving along the highway and there were these horrible black streaks of grease on the ground. And people were like, what is that? They smelled, it was disgusting. So it turned out that a company in New York, upper upstate New York, had brought um, this PCBs, toxic um, waste, and dumped it along the roadside in, the, in one of the poorest, blackest places in North Carolina. And so, of course, they got arrested, they went to prison, but they had to figure, the uh, North Carolina people had to figure out, well, where is this gonna go? And so they decided that it was gonna go in this town in North Carolina. So they created a landfill to dump the toxic waste there. So what happened was, what sometimes doesn't happen, but when it does happen, it's really beautiful, is that the people fought back. And so this was the first time that, um, it, I mean, when you look at the pictures and you look at the video of this, it looks like what happened in, you know, 10 years earlier in the 1960s and early 1970s. People lay across the road, they locked arms, they said, no, you are not bringing this toxic waste into our communities. Um, it became a national news story and it really kicked off um, the, the environmental justice movement, the black-led environmental justice movement to say, we do not want this in our communities, but we also are proving that it disproportionately lands in our communities, whether it's a refinery, it's a toxic waste site, it's you know whatever polluting industry hits there. The people in Warren County, North Carolina, despite all the media coverage, despite preachers coming in, despite a, a really multiracial group of um, activists trying to, putting their lives on the line, they brought in the state police, all this stuff, um, they lost. So the landfill did end up there, but it still kicked off the mo modern environmental justice movement, which still exists. Unfortunately, the, the environmental justice movement, though it's done its best, black people, people of color, but specifically black people are more, 75% more likely than other people to live near a polluting, factory, a waste site, something like that. And so that is just the facts. 
if you, and so most people, when I write about this, say, well, it's because, you know, of poverty. So in, I answer that in two ways. One, okay, yeah, in some ways, because black people are more likely in our country to be have segregated housing because of a history of economic injustice, redlining, which meant that communities were, um, uh, you couldn't buy a house in certain communities, you couldn't get a mortgage in certain communities because of the government. But also, if you look at the environmental, um, if you look at environmental racism, even across class lines, black people are still more likely to be um, connected to some kind of pollution or live adjacent to some kind of pollution. So that's just the facts. Um, right now, we are seeing this in a kind of a tragic way, and it kind of centers on the idea of what George Floyd's dying words were, I can't breathe. So George Floyd couldn't breathe because of police violence, but also George Floyd had COVID. He, was, he had COVID when he died. Um, in April of this year, um, there was a study out of Harvard that showed that people who live near pollution, 70% of black people are more like, you know, it's more likely to be a black person living near pollution, are more likely to have worse COVID outcomes. So it's like this horrible um, brain wreck or perfect storm of terrible things. COVID is more likely to strike people who have underlying con health conditions and who are likely to be associate, you know, living adjacent to pollution. It makes COVID worse. At the same time, and COVID is a disease of the lungs. And so that is literally, I cannot breathe. And so that's kind of the backdrop of that. Um, thank you, Lori, and thank you, Erica, for having me. And I also wanted to say, you know, you know I'm working on a book. And the chapter of my book that I finished recently was about environmental justice, environmental racism. And it's centered on two women friends. So all my stories have a narrative. So these were two women that I met at, an at a climate change conference sponsored by Al Gore. So it was mostly young people, a thousand people. And so, um, and like by and large, when you look at the climate justice movement, it's mostly young white people. So I'm at this sea of young white people. So I was like, where are the people of color? Is there gonna be anybody? And so there was one panel where there was a black woman. So I was like all, all over that. And I was right in the front and she was so shy. You could tell she had, had not had a lot of experience speaking in public. And she was also wearing this kind of strange hat thing. And so she was kind of embarrassed about it, but she explained that it was her treatment for brain cancer. And so she was talking about, she had grown up being exposed to um, Duke Energy, which is a huge plant in North Carolina. And so she lived right by there. And her, when she, she well, I'll tell you the longer story. After the conference, her best friend, her best white friend, Caroline, so this was like, I thought my heart was just on fire because I saw her friend had brought her to the conference to make sure she was gonna be okay to speak about her exposure to pollution and how she thinks it caused her cancer. So I was super happy to interview the two of them. 
and they just, it was the best friendship. They had known each other from elementary school. Um, the white, the a black woman got pregnant and stayed in the community. The white woman left, but then she started, she found out her friend was sick in, had brain cancer, and so she started doing research about environmental racism and environmental justice. And so she brought her friend, lifted her up to say, tell your story. So I ended up writing their story for my book. And then um, in, I guess it was December 29th last year, I got a note from Caroline, Danielle died. And so Caroline's heartbroken. I went to North Carolina to, you know, see where the two of them lived. And it turns out that Danielle lived so cl very close to the energy plant. They did not know that they had polluted the water, they had polluted the land, and the black community was adjacent to that. Caroline is now, um, she showed me where um, Danielle's buried. I met Danielle's mother. And then I also saw the beautiful pieces of art that um, using the coal ash, which is the polluted ash that comes from the Duke Energy Plant, to make art in memory of her friend. And I never forgot, you know, of course, I've never forgotten their story, their friendship, their love for each other, but also the idea that this is a issue that most likely um, environmental racism and climate justice most likely is about, affects people of color and especially black people, but it's all of our issue. It's an American problem. And we have to, you know, it's best when we work on it together. So I'll give a pause there. Um, and, you know, if you have questions for me, I'm super excited to answer them. Yeah, I think if you could talk in a little bit more about how those worlds collided, particularly with COVID. Because um, I know as I hear some of the commentary and we see the numbers, you know, we see how Blacks are disproportionately impacted um, by COVID. But it, it's almost, sometimes the narrative can sound like, oh, they have all these other health problems. That's why it's impacting. Like it's something that we've done to ourselves versus something that has that's kind of happened, like you said, this collision of all these different things happening. So can you speak a little bit more about what the environment, the impact it has had and how we see that play out today? Mm. So um, there has never been a time in American history where black people have not had worse health out outcomes than white people. So when you look at those health outcomes, the assumption is twofold. Either one, there is something inherently inferior about the black body, a weakness, a, there's something wrong with black people genetically, or there's something we're doing wrong. Either we don't understand how to eat, we live in, we choose to live in places that aren't healthy. We um, don't exercise because we don't feel like it. Um, and so that has been the, the ongoing narrative, but there is a growing um, sort of uh, change of thinking and COVID has, you know, in a horrible way, but in a kind of a good way, has changed that narrative. Because now we know that it is less about something that is wrong with us specifically, or something that we're doing wrong, and is more about the places we live, work, play, and pray are not healthy, not because we're there by choice or we mess them up, but because of things like pollution. So, the last story I did 
um, it was about, it's called the refinery next door, it was about a, a community in Philadelphia where um, public housing was placed near a factory that has clearly poisoned the air and the water. So when you go into the schools in that community, you open a cabinet, there are um, asthma inhalers marked alphabetically, and it's like so many, because some, some huge percentage of the children in that community have asthma. And people just think, oh, the air is bad here, that's how it goes. But it's like they were living so close to this refinery. And people were, it was interesting because when they were talking about the asthma, they were saying, oh, the, the parents are doing something wrong. They're not controlling the asthma. They're not taking care of it. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> that refinery is right close to where they live. So it's so often the assumption, we're doing something wrong, something's wrong with us. Um, and it's not about what has happened systemically in our country. And with COVID, um, it's interesting because right away, even the, the um, Surgeon General, who's black, was saying, hey, black people, you're, you know, stop eating, drinking, big mama, you know, all that craziness he said, was this kind of blame <laughs> about something we're doing wrong. And if you look at it, it's not about that, it's about something else. And even, you know, there was a lot of focus on the underlying health conditions as though it's something we're doing wrong. But I'm saying flip the script. What if some of the, these underlying health conditions are not a risk factor? Black is not a risk factor for them. So that's the thinking, that being black is a risk factor, and then a risk factor means genetically you're, something's wrong or you're doing something not correct because you're uneducated, you don't care, whatever. But what if it's a risk marker for discrimination, for being treated badly in our country, for systemic racism in healthcare, for environmental racism that has changed the bodies of and changed the experience of us and our health? So that's the newer thinking. And when I first started my reporting, you know, I started reporting about COVID specifically in March. I was on a panel for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and they said, oh, what should our panel be called? And so somebody said, let's call it public health, um, racism as a public health threat. No one signed on to that. I was even like, whoa, that's kind of strong. Now, most of the thinking is that. It's like, how is not race, but racism, a, you know, the problem um, around all of these issues, including COVID. So, I mean, you've raised some really good points, and I'm sure there's many other examples that we should be thinking about or considering. But as I think about individuals and communities, how do we, um, how do we as individuals make sure that we have economically and environmentally, um, what's the word I want to say, viable? communities and neighborhoods, right? Because I think this affects, if we think about the example that got us here, it has long-term effects on an individual, right? It may start as a child, but as they look at what's going on in their adulthood, there's all kinds of ramifications that come up. And so how can we make sure we're holding, you know, regulatory officials accountable? How can we make sure we have more viable options in our communities? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first thing you can do is understand what the issues are and what they mean. 
And yeah. I mean, I am not, you know, like how I seem all woke now is not how I used to be. <laughs> when I was at Essence, I was, my thinking was, if individual people change their behavior and just eat better, exercise better, take better care of themselves, are more educated about health, go to doctors, you know, when they should, then the, the, um, the whole black race will stop being disproportionately affected by all kinds of health problems. That was my thing. I was like, we can save a generation of, um, you know, generations of black people through black women changing their, you know, it's all about us, all on us, changing our behavior and helping the, those around us do better. Yeah. I still 100% believe that every single person should take great care of themselves. You know, exercise, eat right, you know, take, go to the doctor, you know, go, you know, take care of yourself. However, we also have to know that this is not our fault. So when, you know, some of this stuff is systemic. And so once you understand it, you become more willing to push back. Pushing back, um, in my story about the refinery in Philadelphia, um, this was, the people who were protesting were not young, the young climate activists that I saw at Al Gore's thing, okay? All the young white folk. It was older black people who said, you know what, our families got sick. It's not, we own our, we can't move, we own our homes. And yeah. so these are homeowners and people who are from the community, who love their community, who want to stay there, but they see that it's unfair that they have been placed so close to a refinery that those were their options when, the, you know, there's their only options to move from public housing to homeownership still near this factory. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, wait a minute, it's up to the factory to clean up our environment. It's not us. And I was really proud. It was like people who hadn't really been involved in environmental justice work before. Um, the funniest uh, anecdote that I have was they were protesting. And so there were some, you know, it was like a multiracial, multi-generational group. So the white kids really wanted to get arrested, okay? So they had, they saw the cops on the side getting red. They had the white ties that you, you know, put their hand. And I, the black women in the back were like, I'm not getting arrested. You will not, I'm not getting arrested. <laughs> Let the white kids get arrested. That's not happening to me. And I just thought, you know what? I love that they are together in this movement and in this fight, but it's their lived experience that is really fueling their energy and also the energy of those around them. Absolutely. And I think too, um, even what's woven into your other stories and experiences are the long-term impact. So, you know, like you said earlier, we're talking to moms and godmoms and aunties in our village. So what are the long-term impacts that maybe you've seen in your research of children who are exposed to this environmental racism and how does it follow them throughout their lives? Well, I mean, as far as environmental racism for children, the most obvious and, um, difficult effect is asthma. So if, you know, the, the, a fundamental right in America and in the world is the right to breathe. So if communities of color are more likely to be adjacent to, a, a, you know, air pollution, and when I say that, it's because factories and polluting companies end up either coming to, you know, uh, placing themselves in communities that aren't able to fight back or communities that aren't able to fight back are placed near these um, 
these refineries and other kinds of facilities. So air, air pollution and asthma is the worst part of it. And it's very hard to deal with that. And it's, you know, it's like a hard situation. I don't even have really an answer. Um, once you have asthma, you know, sometimes it goes away. Childhood, childhood asthma comes and then you can get rid of it as an adult. It just, you know, goes away. But if you have a child who has asthma, I'm sure some of you who are even listening do. It's very hard. It's no joke. There's a regimen of medications. I followed a woman who, whose child had asthma, a wonderful, smart, a teacher who was just trying to take care of her little energetic girl who all she wanted to do was be a dancer. And she it was, she, I said, show me her asthma medication. So she pulls out this plastic bag and there were so many medications. And then I said, how do you keep it together? And she had a schedule that were in different colors, green, uh, yeah, green for everything's cool, yellow, uh-oh, problem with the asthma, red, um, crisis. And I realized, wow, this is really hard for a working mother um, to keep track of her one kid um, who had this terrible illness. So I'm like, I my heart goes out to people who have that. But I think the, the thing that I advocate now is to say, you have to fight back and know that you have a voice and that it's this is unfair, it's not your fault. And that those around you just need to understand what's going on and really be part of the, you know, a movement that's real now. Climate justice is real. When you talk, when you hear, remember during the Democratic debates, how much the um, candidates talked about climate justice and environmental justice. And I was impressed. So that is an energy that's happening right now. It's important to be part of that movement. I'll say too another thing um, that I know we've experienced because I do have a, a child with asthma. Is that you you're not educated on it. You know, it's um, you don't get enough information. So if you don't educate yourself, and if you don't advocate for your children, then that's another way how you can see really that systemic racism come into play. Where hey, yeah, here's your prescription for for this. Go ahead and like for us, we didn't even know that there were several options that you could look at that might be better for your child or anything. And so that's another thing that comes in, particularly when we just start looking at health disparities and health injustices and how racism can even play a role in the type of care that you get. So like you said, it, it all just came together. It's, it's this really ugly symphony, I guess, that all comes together and collides um, when you start seeing how one thing impacts another. Yeah. And my, I mean, there, it's, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt with um, so much evidence that there is systemic racism in healthcare. And so people often challenge me to say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm a doctor. I'm not like, I'm not racist. And I'm like, no, I don't think doctors are racist. But um, in 2002, there was the groundbreaking landmark study called Unequal Treatment. And it was a report that looked at 483 other studies. And it showed that Doctors and other healthcare providers are biased, and the bias is unconscious. So it's not that people who are in healthcare go into healthcare to harm. Their very saying is do no harm. And so it's not that. It's an unconscious bias. And, you know, everyone in America has some kind of bias. So it's just recognizing it. And one of the biases is that parents of children with asthma do not know how to take care of their kids. 
And so that's a bias. There have been studies that have shown that healthcare providers, providers believe more often that if you're a black parent, you're not gonna follow the healthcare regimen without looking into the full picture of what it takes to take care of your child. But having a stereotype in the back of your head about the black parent is the part that is messed up. And so, you know, when I saw that mom that I was following, I saw she was doing the best she could. And certainly, you know, it was a hard situation for her. And her daughter was really, really ill, but she was doing the best she could. So I just kept thinking, what if there's a bias against her that's saying, well, because you're a black mom coming into the ER, you're not doing the best you can. But studies have shown that that is the bias that some healthcare providers have. So Ms. Linda, we want to be respectful of your time. I know you have to get on the road and get to someone very special. So we want to say thank you. If there's any last comments or anything else you want us to share and make sure we continue to support you and your work, I'll leave that to you before we close. Um, well, I think the thing I wanted to say was, you know, I'm really, you know, my background is at Essence. I'm at a mainstream publication now, but, you know, I really believe in um, the resilience of our communities, the power of our communities, the knowledge of our communities, the way we take care of each other. And I'm really proud, you know, to be a black woman and also to, you know, sort of like we are holding up a lot of this world right now. And, you know, we, we get tired, you know, you started with, I know you're tired, you know, I, know a lot and I appreciate that. But, you know, even when, you know, we talk about these problems of our communities, I tend to focus on the solutions and I tend to focus on the power that we have and the, you know, the power that we've always had and the work we've done and how the love we have and how we care for each other. Well, thank you. Excellent close. You didn't even know that was a great segue. Before we close out today, definitely want to thank you all for joining us for our Momversations on Race. Thank you. Give a virtual uh, two snaps for Miss Linda Villarosa, who came to share and educate us all on environmental justice. And if you haven't seen it, we want to invite you to join us next weekend. It is our Renaissance Woman Weekend, where we will talk about the collective power and building and amplifying on the power of women so that we can continue to lift our voice and continue to show up for our vote. So join us October 2nd and 3rd. You can find out information at events.wonder.com. See you there. Have a great night and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs>